The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, it is great to see you. My name is Penny. And I'm the pastor here, and uh, it is great to be with you this morning. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, uh, you are joining us uh, this day on our last day looking at the Psalms for the summer. So the last number of summers, uh, we've uh, turned our attention to various Psalms, this beautiful book in the Old Testament, the hymn book of the Old Testament people of God. We've gone back to these Psalms again and again, and this, this morning we're ending our summer of psalms with psalm 61 and so if you have a bible you can turn to psalm 61 if you don't have a bible there are bibles in the chairs in front of you uh, there we will also project the passage on the screens and if uh, if you're here and you don't have a bible and you need one you would like one please just take that one in the chair that's yours um, we no one will stop you we would want you to have it uh, it is it is our gift to you but this morning we're looking at psalm 61 which is a psalm of david it's a lament psalm. It is David crying out. It's him calling out. It is him looking and turning to the Lord. And he writes this in Psalm 61. To the choir master with stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And now as we come to it, we ask that you would help us. That you would lead us to yourself. Father, that you would be our refuge, our hiding place. That our hope would rest in you. And that we would look to your goodness, your kindness, your beauty and truth. So lead us in the way that we are to go. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So where do you look when you're scared? Where do you go? What do you do? Where do you turn? Kids, what about you? What, where do you go? How do you respond when you're afraid, when anxiety overwhelms, when you're terrified? Where do you go? Well, in thinking about that question this week, uh, there is a scene from uh, that wonderful holiday movie, A Christmas Story, that came to mind. <laughs> I know we're in the dead of summer, the heat of summer, and so the idea of thinking about the coldness of Christmas might be, well, it's, it's unimaginable right now, but regardless, uh, my mind went to this movie. You know that movie, A Christmas Story. It tells the story of Ralphie and the Red Rider BB gun, but that's not where my mind went. No, my mind went to the scene following what Ralphie referred to as the Scut Farkas affair. You remember 
uh, Scott Farkas, the local bully, the neighborhood bully who, who pressured and terrorized and, and used his strength against those kids who were weaker than him, Scott Farkas. Not Scott, Scott. <laughs> Remember, he had yellow eyes, yellow eyes, the narrator said. Well, Scott Farkas has been terrorizing the neighborhood He's been uh, punishing Ralphie and his friends. He's been chasing after them and stirring fear and dread in their hearts until one day Ralphie snaps. You remember, he's hit in the eye with a snowball. His glasses are broken, and, and he meets Scott with force, and he starts to hit him. And he falls upon him, and he's fighting with him, and he's yelling things at him. And in the midst of this fighting and this yelling, his mother has to come and pull him off of the bully. And he, he's drugged back to his house. And there, after the Scott Farkas affair, we find Ralphie sitting in his room, laying on his bed in the dark, terrified. He's afraid not of Scott Farkas and what might come the next day. No, he's afraid of what might come when his father returns home. And his father hears that he's been fighting and his glasses are broken and, and of all the things that he said. He's afraid. And so he hides away in his room in the dark. But it's not just he that's afraid. You remember his younger brother, Randy, he's terrified as well. And Randy, where does he hide? He hides under the sink. In the cabinets, right? And there he is, weeping and crying. And finally, his mother comes over and says, Randy, what's wrong? And he says, Daddy's going to kill Ralphie. <laughs> we know his father's not going to kill him, but he is terrified. He's afraid. And so he hides. Kids, where do you go when you're afraid? What do you do? Maybe like... Ralphie or Randy, you hide away as well. Don't, don't hide under the kitchen sink. <laughs> don't go there. But, but maybe you go to the closet. Or you pull your blankets over your heads. Or you go running into your parents' room. You go and you find a place where you can hide, where, where you will find safety. But you know what, kids? It's not just you that do this. It's not just you that hide away like this in times of fear and terror. Your parents do it as well. And so do all the adults around you. It's, it's just we do it in different places. We don't sit in closets or pull the covers over our heads, though I have witnessed an adult or two pull the covers over their head when watching a scary movie. <laughs> no, we don't do those sorts of things. We look to other places to hide. We hide behind computer screens. And we find refuge in indulging our appetites, and we look for safety in those who will agree with us. But wherever it is that you look, in times of need, we all look for refuge. A place that's safe, a place to hide away. Kids, you do it, and the adults in this room do it, and David did it as well. David, we're told in verse 2 that he's in distress. He says that his heart is faint. Now, that word for faint there, it, it means wounded. And it's not necessarily speaking about physical wounding. It can speak about emotional or psychological or even spiritual wounding. 
In fact, it's the same word that shows up in the title of Psalm 102 when David is speaking about the emotional and psychological affliction he's experiencing. And so David is distressed. And many think that the reason for his distress in Psalm 61 is that that this is the occasion when Absalom was chasing him. You remember this? Absalom was seeking his ill, was, was chasing after him. But you can imagine that in that instance, David would have not only experienced physical distress, but emotional and relational distress. Because remember who Absalom was. Absalom was this one whom David loved, he cared for. Absalom was David's son. And so it's easy to see why David would say that his heart is faint. And so when his heart is faint, when he's distressed, when he's scared, where does he turn? Where does he look for safety and refuge? Well, it's not in his ability to stay one step ahead of Absalom. It's not in his ability to find the the cave that is off the beaten path that no one will find. It's not even in his own position as king. No, it's not his office or his ability that he turns to because those things won't help him. No, where he finds safety and comfort is in the Lord. In the midst of David's distress, David hides And he hopes. He hides in the Lord. He hides in God. That's what he said when his heart is faint from the remotest parts of the world, right? He said, from the end of the earth, I cry out. And what does he cry out? Verses 2 through 4. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. And so you hear David's request. It's for refuge. It's for a place of protection. David is asking God to hide him in God's care. I mean, those three requests, right? He's invoking God's care, this hiding. We hear it in the first one, the rock that is higher than I. The second, dwelling in God's tent. And the third, finding refuge under God's wings. The rock in the tent and the wings. These are places where David will find hiding, where he will find refuge. But what's significant about these structures is that that the structures themselves isn't what David is looking to, to find refuge. It's who he finds in the midst of those structures. It's the Lord. It's God who leads him to the rock. It's God's wings that provide him protection. It's God's tent, most likely the place of worship where David will dwell. You see, the constant in all three of these hiding places is the Lord. That's what David is looking to. He's not looking to the rock or to the tent. He's not looking to the wings themselves to find hiding. He's looking to the Lord. And David bases this on his historical experience. He actually grounds his requests, these three requests, lead me, let me dwell, let me take refuge. He grounds these like many other psalms. He grounds them in the past to inform his present. We see it in verse 3. He's already made one request, lead me to the strong tower, right? Let me find refuge. And then he says what? You have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. You have been. 
David is invoking the past. God has been this strong tower. He has been his refuge. That language of tower, it's, it's speaking of a military fortification that would provide protection for those inside. And David has experienced that protecting in the past. He's experienced it before. God, you have been my refuge. Now be it again. And we know how David's experienced it, right? Because we know David's story. We know his history. That God had been with him and fought for him against Goliath. That's what he said, right? That's what he said to Saul when he was trying to convince Saul to let him go to war. And that's what he even said to the giant. The Lord will put you into my hands. The Lord will deliver you over to me. The Lord will fight this battle. It was God who fought for him against Goliath, and it was God who went with him against the Philistines, and it was God who protected him against Saul. David is confident to hide in the Lord because God had been his hiding place before. So what will this look like for us? What does it look like for us to hide in the Lord? Well, it looks like in our distress... And in our turmoil to call out to the Lord like David did. It begins with crying out to him. You have been my refuge in the past. Be my refuge again. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. It begins with calling out. But it also looks like coming to the place of worship. I already mentioned that David speaking of dwelling in the tent of God. Is a reference to the place of worship. But we see this even clearer in verses 5 and 8. When David speaks of his vows and of singing, these are the things that we do in the context of worship. You see, we come and we find hiding in God in the place of worship because it's in worship that as we sing and as we pray and as we come to God's word and we dine at his table, that we are reminded that he has been our hiding place before. That we're reminded of all the things that God has done to be our refuge. We come again and hear the saints singing together and come under his word. And we offer prayers to him because he has been and continues to be our refuge. You see, it's in the place of worship that we hide in the Lord. He is our place of hiding. But David doesn't simply hide in God. He doesn't stop there. David also hopes in the king. It's what we see in verses 6 through 7. He says, prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. Now what's interesting about this uh, prayer that David's making in verses 6 and 7, I don't know if you notice this, but we see a change that's occurring from the beginning of the psalm to the end of the psalm. So in the beginning of the psalm, did you notice that he was using first-person pronouns? I and me. But now he turns his focus to the king. Now what might be weird for us is that David is the king. So, so why does he speak of the king in these general ways? Why doesn't David simply speak about himself some more? Right? Why does he say prolong the life of the king? Why doesn't he say prolong the life of me? right? May my years endure. May I be enthroned. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over me. Why, why does David now speak generally of the king? Well, I think what's happening here is that David is looking beyond himself 
and his own circumstances, and now he is looking to the promises that God made that are tied to the king. And you remember those promises, the promises that were made in 2 Samuel 7, when God entered into a covenant with David and made a promise to him. And what did God promise? He said, I will make for you a great name. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My steadfast love will not depart from him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Now, if we're listening closely to these words that, Dave, that God speaks to David in 2 Samuel 7, they will sound very familiar to the words that David prays in verses 6 and 7. The eternality of the kingship. The forever throne. God's steadfast love falling upon the king. You see, what David is doing when he prays this prayer in verses 6 and 7 is David is remembering the promise of 2 Samuel 7, a promise that would ultimately not be fulfilled with David. Because even in 2 Samuel 7, God said, your days will come to an end. David, you will lie down with your fathers. And so David knew that another was to come after him who would be greater than him. A king who would embody covenant faithfulness, who would rule with perfect justice, whose throne would endure for all generations. That was David's hope. David's hope was not that he would reign on the throne forever, but that another one would. And that faithfulness would follow. This reminded me of a promise that we read in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You remember that wonderful children's book by C.S. Lewis? If you've never read that, you should do yourself a favor and stop what you're reading and start reading that today. <laughs> it's this beautiful story, right, of these four children, Peter and Edmund, Susan and Lucy, who are transported into this magical world of Narnia, right? This magical world full of mythical beasts and mythical creatures and beasts that talk, right? This place where it's always winter but never Christmas, and it's always winter, but never Christmas, because the white witch reigns in this place. And so these four children are transported into this place, and they meet these different creatures, and they befriend these beasts. And two of the friends that they meet are the beavers, right? Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And do you remember what they told these four children? Well, Mr. and Mr. Beaver, Mrs. Beaver, they, they spoke to the children about a promise, about a prophecy, and it had to do with the thrones, the four thrones at Ker Paravel. Ker Paravel is this great castle on the seashore. And there, there are four thrones. And what the, the beavers declare is that one day, those four thrones would be filled with two kings and two queens. And when they are filled, it will mean that the white witch has been defeated. And that's what happened. Because when you turn to the end of the story, I'm sorry to give it away, <laughs> But when you turn to the other end of the story, that's what happens because the two sons of Adam, Peter and Edmund, and the two daughters of Eve, Susan and Lucy, they're enthroned at Ker Paravel. And Narnia, we're told, was governed well and long and happy was their reign. Yes, at first, the, the remnants of the White Witch's army still needed to be defeated and destroyed, but in the end, we're told that all that foul brood was stamped out. 
You see, when the thrones were filled, peace and justice, grace and truth reigned. And y'all, that is the hope that is tied to the king. That is the hope that David had, and that is the hope that we have today. Because we know that the king that was promised is King Jesus. David's greater son, the one who by his life and death and resurrection has defeated death and hell and the grave. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he sits upon David's throne. And so just as David looks forward with hope at the coming of the king, we look back with hope at the king who has come. But we don't just look back. No, what's amazing is that we don't just look back, but we hope today because Jesus' kingship continues. The things, this did not just occur in the past. It is a present reality today. Jesus is enthroned now. He rules over heaven and earth today. He is our king. And because of that, because of that, we should have hope today. And to ask, are we living as people of hope? Is that what characterizes our lives? Hope that the throne has been filled Hope that King Jesus is on the throne, that he rules over heaven and earth. Is that what characterizes our lives? You know, this past week I heard a phrase I'd never heard before. The phrase is catastrophic imagination. I wonder if any of y'all have ever heard that. It was very perplexing when I first heard it. It was very strange to me. But it was speaking, at least in this context, it was speaking of of us building, the need for us to build our ability to imagine the horrible and the catastrophic as something that is possible. So the way that it it plays out, what, what they're encouraging us to do to increase our catastrophic imagination is to think about the horrible and the catastrophic to think about the, the terrible that may come so that when it does come, we're ready for it. Now, as I was thinking about this at first, I, I can affirm some of that, right? Like, like, we know the horrible, and we know the catastrophic, right? I mean, we experience it. We, we experience it in, in what we're observing in Afghanistan, and the refugees, right, and, and the homeless and the displaced, We experience it, we see the horrible and the catastrophic and and natural disasters that descend upon little islands like Haiti or that are approaching the Gulf Coast even now. We see the horrible and the catastrophic, not just on global scales, but we experience it in our own hearts, right? It's not hard for us to imagine that, that everything we've been working for, all the hard work we've been doing at work, like tomorrow it could be gone. The difficult relationships, the hard conversations, right? Like all of these things run through our minds. It's not hard for us to cultivate this sort of imagination, is it? No, you see, I I can affirm that we need not ignore the horrible, but, but I don't have to work at that. It actually comes quite easy. It comes quite easy to cultivate an imagination built on catastrophe. But as people of hope, that's not what we should be cultivating. No, instead of cultivating a fruit of catastrophe, what we should be seeking to cultivate is the fruit of hopeful imagination. 
hopeful imagination. Hopeful imagination of, of, of a world and a people and a person who is living under the reign of Jesus. To, to speak words of faith, to see with eyes focused on God's promise, to live lives with hope. In other words, we, we use our words and our thoughts and our lives to reflect not that the throne is empty, but that the king is on his throne. Y'all, it doesn't mean that that difficulty and distress won't come. It means that we have confidence in the midst of our distress and difficulty that that's not the end of the story. That's what hopeful imagination is. It's believing the promises of God. It's knowing that it's not the end of the story because it wasn't the end of David's story. Did you notice the psalm began with David's heart being faint, but look how it ends. When his hope is fixed on the king, he says in verse 8, will, So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Do you hear that? Day after day he will perform his vows. Day after day he will live before God. Day after day he will sing praise to God forever. That his faint heart has been replaced with hope. He's been replaced with hope. Praise because in God he has found a hiding place. Praise because in God's king he has found hope. And people of God, so too have we. And so in our times of distress and when our hearts are faint, cry out, call out, look to hide yourself in the Lord and look to his king the one who reigns today, the one who has promised to come, who has come and is coming again, and put your hope in him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that today and every day we can place our hope in you, our God who has sent your Son, our Lord Jesus, who sits enthroned on David's throne, who is David's greater Son and is the King who rules and reigns forever. We long for his kingdom not just to come, but to be culminated in his returning. And so, Lord Jesus, come. Come and establish your kingdom. Come and bring it to fruition. Come and rule over us. And until that day does come, give us hope and help us to hide in you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. And God's people said together, amen.